Welcome, everyone, to the Farm CPA podcast presented by Top Producer. This is Paul Neefer, your host. Today's podcast is actually just going to be a special year-end tax planning podcast for farmers. We're going to go through some of the common uh, tax planning techniques that farmers use. We'll go through some of the rules that need to be followed to make sure that you do it right so that the IRS doesn't come back and assess you a year or two down the road. Also, make sure you understand that now the penalty or just the interest charge, I should say, is 6% for this quarter, the fourth quarter of 2022. The first quarter of 2023, maybe 7%. Uh, We've had many, many years of the penalty rate, the interest rate only being 3%. Well, it's doubled, so it's a little bit more costly if we make mistakes. So that's something to be cognizant of. So one of the things that farmers really use a lot of is when they sell crops in the current year, they have the option, and farmers really are the only taxpayers that have this option, they can elect to defer the sale of that crop inventory to the following year. Now, some of the keys uh, in order to prevent what the IRS calls constructive receipt, because if you've sold a crop and you just simply say, hey, you tell the elevator, I don't want that uh, money, Uh, IRS is going to argue constructive receipt. They're going to say you have the right to demand payment. So anytime you have the right to demand payment, that means the IRS wants you to report that income on the day you sold it, not the day you got the cash. So in order to be a good deferred payment contract, we want to have that deferral agreement in place no later than the time of sale. Uh, So some elevators have a separate, what we call a deferred payment agreement. It's something you sign. And then as you make sales, you let them know, hey, this sale, I want it to be applied to that agreement. Others, it's exactly at the time of sale. But we we definitely want to make sure that's done. Now, written deferral agreements can also be amended. You know, maybe one option is you sold 50,000 bushels and maybe you want to split that into two. That can be done. Uh, and that actually makes it easier for us to go ahead and bring additional income into the tax return in later years, because we can always elect, even though you sold the crop this year, you're not gonna collect the cash until 2023. When we prepare your tax return, we can say, oops, we overshot, we had too many expenses, not enough income, and we can decide, hey, we're gonna bring $100,000, $50,000 of income from that we received in 2023, we're gonna bring it back into 2022. However, that has to be on a contract by contract basis. So um, having a a large contract may not help us. Having a series of smaller and medium-sized contracts are really what we're looking for. So that's something to to understand. Also, we know that if you're selling farmland and maybe it's got a four or $500,000 gain, that's gonna put you in the highest tax bracket on that capital gain you may want to sell that on installment sale treatment and get that income spread over a number of years. And also right now with interest rates being higher, you know, you can easily assess an interest rate of five, six, seven, eight percent, and the buyer would be very happy to pay that rate because it saves them going to the bank. You know, right now 
probably the cheapest money you're going to get on real estate financing is in that 6% range anyway. Uh, now, if you're selling equipment on an installment sale, that really doesn't gain us anything other than the fact that you potentially can push, if you sell equipment now on an installment note that is due in less than 120 days, we technically can push that gain from 2022 into 2023. But again, it needs to be what we call an installment note due in less than 120 days. If that's something you're interested in, make sure you talk to your tax advisor. Also, we know that a lot of farmers want to start selling depreciable assets to their kids. Uh, you can't sell, well, you can always sell that on an installment note, but if you do that, that gain has to be reported in the year of sale, 100% of the gain. Uh, so that's something to be aware of. So again, we like deferred payment contracts. They're very favorable. It allows our farmers to lock in that very favorable price. Uh, certainly for me on, on my wheat sales this year, I was able to lock in a good price earlier. Uh, I actually took, actually I took the income in this year because I got plenty of other deductions to offset it with. Now, another option that farmers have is prepaid farm expenses. This is where you're purchasing fertilizer, uh, chemicals, um, gas and diesel, but you're not taking delivery. You're simply going to the farm input dealer and you're saying, I want to buy, you know, 100 tons of nitrogen or 5,000 gallons of diesel. But really, the delivery is going to be in February or March. We call that a prepaid farm expense. However, in order for it to be allowed for the IRS purposes, A, you got to have a business purpose. Well, the business purpose, hey, I'm locking in a price. I don't have to worry about the price going up. So that's pretty easy. Uh, you can't have a material distortion of income. If by purchasing all these farm supplies, that creates a loss, the IRS is going to have some issues with that. So we, we usually don't want to create a loss by doing this. And a lot of people do create a loss because then they have all these gains from trading in farm equipment. So that can be problematic. Now, we would argue you want to look at the net net amount, and I think the IRS will go along with it, but you still have to be very careful. Now, the IRS sometimes, they want to know how the seller, the seller of the product actually treats that uh, on their books. If they treat it as a deposit, don't report it as income, then the IRS is asserting, hey, you can't deduct it. Well, that's wrong. It doesn't matter what the seller does, it's what you do on your side. And again, this part of the code, part of the regulations. So we should be, as long as you follow the rules, you're going to be in good shape. But what are those rules? Okay, first, the key thing is it can't be a deposit. You can't simply go down to the input dealership, give them a $50,000 payment, and on the invoice it says deposit on farm chemicals, deposit on farm supplies. That doesn't work. It needs to be a specific chemical, specific fertilizer, specific seed, specific uh, diesel, or whatever it might be. It's got to have the quantity. You know, you're buying uh, 5,000 gallons of diesel for 529 per gallon or whatever it is, 422 per gallon, depending where you're at in the country. Out in our area, diesel, even farm diesel, is probably close to $5 a gallon. Um, and then the quantity or the extended price. Uh, so if you don't have that on your invoice, just realize if you get audited by the IRS, they're going to disallow that. 
Now, it's a one-year disallowance, so you didn't get to deduct it in 2022. You're going to be able to deduct it in 2023. So, you know, is it is it fatal? Probably not, uh, but it isn't pleasant, I can tell you that. And then finally, your deduction for prepaid farm supplies can exceed 50% of all your other farm operating expenses, including depreciation. Now, there are a couple exceptions. Uh, if you have a change in business, you know, you've added on, you've doubled your acres, you're going to be able to do more. Also, if you met the 50% in the prior three years, you automatically can meet it this year. Now, that means starting next year, you can't rely on that. And also remember that rent is not a prepaid farm supply. Uh, that is a separate from this calculation. So we're really talking about those farm inputs. So you also are allowed to really go up to 12 months of need. So far for feed, seed, fertilizer, et cetera, those insurance contracts that expire no later than the end of the next year, that is really what you can prepay. If you're going beyond 12 months and you get audited, the IRS is going to disallow that. Now, again, you get the deduction next year. And then also understand that when you put your check in the mailbox, that's when it's considered to be paid. So you can put the check in the mail. So let's say you're prepaying rent for one of your landlords. You put the check in the mailbox on December 31st. They receive the rent check on January 2nd. They're able to pick up the income next year. You're able to do the deduction this year. Uh, so that's just something to understand. Okay, other items, equipment purchases, um, this can be problematic with some of the supply chain issues, although I'm starting to hear that it's not quite as bad as it was last year. Uh, technically, that piece of equipment needs to be in available for use. Doesn't mean because, you know, on December 29th, it's hard to go out there and drive the combine or even to necessarily drive the tractor, but it's got to be available. Now, you know, we if it's going to the dealer, and it's still sitting at the dealer, that technically is not in service. It needs to be on the farm. All the dealer prep needed to be completed. If you have an invoice that says, hey, I bought a tractor for 300,000, but the tractor hasn't been delivered, just understand on audit, if the IRS picks this up, you're not gonna get the deduction this year, it'll be next year. Uh, so the inability of a, of a dealer to deliver that equipment causes denial of bonus or section 179. Speaking of bonus, understand that for this year, you're allowed 100% bonus depreciation on all farm assets other than land. So if you buy a quarter section, and it's got a machine shop on there and that machine shop has got a value of 800,000, you get to deduct 800,000. However, next year, bonus depreciation is going to drop to 80%. So instead of deducting a full 800,000, you might only be able to deduct about 660,000. It's 640 bonus plus regular depreciation. Uh, so that's something to be aware of. Now there's talk in Congress about possibly, you know, extending 100% bonus depreciation for a few more years. But as of right now, that's not the rule. And just a reminder, constructive receipt you know, if you sold something at the elevator in December and you received the check in January, and if there's a lot of time delay, so if the check was dated December 15th 
and you and you said, hey, I received on January 2nd. Just understand the IRS may have some issues with that. Now, if you're in Hawaii, like my family, I'm I'm taking my or I'm going with my oldest son and and my three grandkids. My wife and I are going to Hawaii on December 28th and we're coming back January 4th. Obviously, anything that we received December 28th and thereafter before the end of the year, we don't have to report as income because we weren't there to get it. Uh, so just just be careful on that. Uh, and again, the IRS loves to assert, hey, if it was written in December, it better be picked up as income in December. Sometimes we have uh, items that we place into service that we take depreciation on it and we have the wrong period. Maybe we thought it was five year and it was actually seven year. Uh, also, maybe we took Section 179 or we did not take Section 179 and we want to take Section 179. Uh, 179 can be amended. We can go back and file an amended return. That's very helpful when we sell the wrong asset. Uh, also, when you purchase property, you purchase that quarter section for 1.5 million, but there's a building on it, there's fences on it, maybe there's a grain bin. We have to allocate all that cost because typically there's no purchase and sales agreement that says how much the value of that property is. We have to allocate the cost between that. Also in the Midwest, where you have a lot of manure management uh, that's been extensive over a number of years, when you purchase land that's got what we call excess fertility, uh, you can elect to pick up that excess fertility and amortize it, usually over about a three-year period, and it's, it's like 60, 30, 10 uh, percentage-wise. But that requires a very good agronomist to come in and determine what that excess fertility value is. You know, with uh, fertilizer prices very high right now, that's that's a pretty good deal. But if the value of your land versus the value of the excess fertility is greater than your purchase price, you're going to have to reduce that excess fertility. Also understand if you're the one that was farming that property and you're the reason why the excess fertility is there, and you end up purchasing that property, uh, you cannot deduct it because you've already deducted it by, you know, doing the deduction for fertilizer over the years. You're not allowed to essentially re-deduct it, so to speak. Uh, that's just one thing uh, that farmers, hey, I get this deduction. Well, no, if you buy it from an unrelated third party that you've never leased the ground, you get the deduction. But if you buy it from the landlord that you've been leasing it from, for the last 20 years, no excess fertility deduction. So something to be aware of. Another thing at year end especially, we like to do charitable gifts of commodities to a, to a charity, especially if the farmer only has the standard deduction, which is getting close to $30,000, especially if you're over age 65. Uh, that, that when you gift a commodity, we get no deduction on the tax return. We don't have to get any type of written acknowledgement from the charity, but we get a deduction via the fact that we're not picking up the income. So let's say we wanna give the local church $15,000, $20,000 of, of cash, but we have the standard deduction, that cash contribution gets us no value. Rather, if we give them $15,000 of grain, we got no basis, there's no deduction, but we didn't pick up the $15,000 of income from selling the grain and then giving the cash to the charity. So we save on income taxes 
and we save on self-employment taxes. So again, the biggest benefit from this is doing it when you're also or in the standard deduction. If you're above that, you still get some benefit, especially if you're a Schedule F farmer. Um, and also realize if you're a crop share landlord, uh, no benefit. If You can still gift it, but you have to pick up the income related to the gift, and then you have an offsetting cash deduction. Commodity wages, we certainly know that if you have either family members or yourself, you're employed by your farm corporation, whether it's a C corporation or an S corporation, you can transfer commodities to the employee, which might be yourself. And the transfer of that is deductible wages by the corporation and taxable to you as wage income. It's gonna show up on W-2 box one, but there's no federal payroll taxes. There's no FICA tax, Medicare tax, FUTA tax. Also, uh, you do not uh, possibly in most states have to pay state unemployment or labor and industry on these payments or, well, ours is labor and industry, I'm talking workers' comp, uh, but realize you get no Social Security credits. Um, if some farmers uh, do 100% of their wages in the form of commodity wages, we prefer not to do that. Remember, if you have on average about $13,000 of earned income with Social Security, you're gonna get at least 90% of that in the form of a retirement uh, plan or retirement payment when you um, retire at full uh, full retirement age with Social Security, which right now is 67. And that gets indexed. It's a great, wonderful annuity. Uh, if you go out and try to buy this annuity in the marketplace, you're going to pay a whole lot more money than simply paying Social Security. So we always want to make sure farmers are reporting taxable Social Security wages income of that 15 to 20,000 a year for sure. Above and beyond that, maybe commodity wages make sense. Um, Social Security is a pretty good deal. Even if they make tweaks some changes, it's still a good deal. Also, if you're a sole proprietor or a husband and wife partnership with no other partners and you have kids under age 18 and they're working on the farm. Uh, you know, I grew up on a farm. I, I don't know when I started driving combine for my dad full time. I think I was 14, 13, 14. I mean, I've been driving it long before that uh, with uh, my dad next to me, but eventually he uh, realized that I wasn't completely worthless and I could do it full time for him. But my mother was the math person in the family. She prepared tax returns for other people, uh, but she messed up. She did not treat that as wages paid to us for doing farm work. So the benefit is if you have kids, and again, it needs to be reasonable, uh, what is the reasonable amount? The farmer gets a tax deduction against income and self-employment tax. There's no payroll taxes on either the employer's side or the child's side. And this is sort of a deductible college education fund. It could, you know, the child could put uh, 6,500, maybe 7,000 next year into a Roth IRA and the child can earn next year can earn up to eight or thirteen thousand eight hundred fifty dollars and not pay any income taxes at least at the federal level uh, so this is this is something that again if you're a sole proprietor or a husband and wife partnership and you have kids working on the farm legitimately you know they're doing you know work uh, yeah if if you if they work 10 hours and you pay them ten thousand dollars 
that's not going to work. Uh, but if they work, you know, 300 hours and you're paying them 20 bucks an hour, which is very reasonable these days, $6,000, that's beneficial for both you and your child. One thing, especially since farmers this year, last year, maybe 2020, 2019, with all the federal government money that's come in with the high, uh, you know, high crop prices, uh, we know we have high crop input prices, but we certainly have high crop prices. Farmers are starting to report more and more income, but they can elect to use what we call farm income averaging. That allows them to spread that income over this year plus the prior three years. So let's say in the prior three years, they reported maybe only $20,000 of net taxable income, and this year it spikes up to $300,000. Well, a lot of that income, if we didn't have farm income averaging, would be taxed at 22%, could be at 24%, could be, um, you know, et cetera. Whereas with farm income averaging, it's all going to be taxed at no higher than a 12% tax bracket. Uh, so that definitely is beneficial. Also, if you didn't qualify as a farmer for estimated tax purposes because you had too much income from trading in farm equipment, that is still farm income for farm income averaging. Uh, sales of farm assets, all farm assets other than land qualifies as farm income. Now, if you're getting paid a wage from a C corporation, a farm C corporation, that is not farm wages. It's only if you're getting income from an S corporation where you're the owner. Um, so that's something to be aware of. Now, it can get a little quirky if you were single and then became married or you're married and got divorced, uh, but you're still allowed to use it, it's just a little bit more problematic on doing the calculations. So that's something to be aware of. Uh, for farmers with higher incomes, you're possibly subject to the net investment income tax. That's on your investment income, interest, dividends, rents, and annuities. However, if you have a lot of rental income and it's being rented to your operating company where you materially participate and you don't have to own 100% of it, all of that self-rental income is going to be considered not subject to this tax. Also, uh, grouping, you can make grouping of that rental income with that farm operation. That's not going to be subject. And then typically, if you were a full-time farmer and then retired and start collecting Social Security, usually your retired farmers are not going to be subject to this tax. Now, we know Congress back in 2021 wanted to change these rules. They thought, it, quote, it was a loophole, even though they they actually are the ones that did the loophole. It wasn't us. It was them. Um, it hasn't changed yet. And with the fact the Republicans control the House, it's likely not going to change for at least two more years. So something to be aware of. Transfer taxes, the, the one nice thing to understand that farmers have a lifetime exemption that they can transfer up to 12920000 next year. And also on an annual basis, next year you can give $17,000 to as many donees as you want to. Uh, so if you have three kids and you have six grandkids, that's nine people that you can give 17000 to. You don't have to file a gift tax return. It's not deductible by you. There's no income on their part. It, it can be to me. You know, I'm not related to you, but if you want to give me 17000 as a gift, 
that's fine. There's no relationship. You can give unlimited to your spouse as long as they're a U.S. citizen. However, remember if you give, uh, let's say you give grain to them, the carryover basis applies. So in that situation, the, they're going to have bases of zero when they sell it. It's going to be a capital gains. But also, if you give them wheat that was harvested in June and they sell it in July of the following year, uh, that's going to be long-term capital gains for them. So there's ways of, of getting uh, value out of that. But one thing you do need to understand, the current lifetime exemption, we have what we call a base exemption of half that amount and a bonus exemption of the remaining half. You get no value on the bonus until you've completely used up the base amount. And what does that mean? Just an example. Let's say you're worth 12, exactly 12920000 and you're not married, and you come to me as the CPA and you say, hey, Paul, I'm going to give away six million nine hundred and six or six million four hundred and sixty thousand this year. That's half of, uh, in 2023. That's half of twelve million nine twenty. Because I say, hey, I know when I pass away after 2025. Let's say I pass away in 2030, and I'm still worth six million four hundred sixty thousand. I'm going to have an exemption amount of six million four hundred sixty thousand. Well, that's not the correct answer. The answer is when you give away that $6,460,000 this year, that wipes out your base exemption. So when you go pass away in 2030 with no inflation and you're worth exactly $6,460,000, you're gonna, your heirs are going to pay about $2 million, $3 million of tax that they probably weren't counting on versus if you had donated or gifted, I should say gifted $12,920,000 this year or in 2023, you would owe, your heirs would owe no tax. Now, if you're a married couple, uh, we use what we call SLAT, Spousal Lifetime Access Trust. Maybe we combine that with a Domestic Asset Protection Trust. And in that situation, spouses have the option of, of, of setting up a trust for each other. That way, they're still going to get all the income during their lifetime because that's what they're relying on. But they've gotten all those assets out of their estate. They don't have to worry about estate taxes. Well, you got two options, you know, and if we're worth exactly $12,920,000, I could do a slap for my spouse for half that amount. I could do a slap for uh, my spouse could do the same for me, not at the same time. We got some other rules, but that's beyond this podcast. And what happens there is when we make that gifts and we're, let's say when we pass away five years from now, we're worth $10 million combined or $5 million combined above and beyond the slat, we're going to owe estate tax because we have no exemption available. Whereas if I set up a slat for my wife equal to 12920 she still has her exemption available in 2026 of six or seven million. So just food for thought. This is something, you know, beyond a podcast, you really need to discuss this with your advisor. Remember, we only have this bonus exemption at least right now for three more years. In 2026, it disappears. Now they may extend it, uh, but right now we only have three more years. So what is your taxable estate? Well, you got to combine all the fair market value of your assets. And on your farmland, if you've been valuing at the bank for 7,000 an acre, and in Iowa, it's really worth 18,000 an acre, we got to use the 18, not the seven. Uh, you're going to add back any prior year gifts in excess of the annual exclusion. You're going to back out your liabilities. 
going to back out your funeral and estate administration costs, back out anything that goes to your surviving spouse, and then anything going to charity. And then what's left over is what you're taxed on. Now, remember, if you have life insurance in your name that you own and you pass away, all that life insurance is also included. So this is something, you know, if you're worth in that 5, 10, 15, 20 million dollar range, you really should be discussing this with your tax advisor. Now, the benefit of running this through your estate is that we get a tax basis step up. Uh, we're going to be able to step it up to fair market value and your heirs are going to go ahead and, and be able to deduct it or when they sell it, they're going to have no income to be reported, no net income. Uh, this is even a benefit uh, for certain crop share landlords, not on the crop, but if they had some prepaid farm expenses, uh, if they have uh, some grain bins, they have a shop on the land, get a full step up in basis. However, any deferred payment contracts, any accrued income, interest, rents, and so on, none of that is going to get a step up. And as I mentioned, this definitely applies to prepaids. You know, you prepaid $400,000 of farm expenses on December 29th and you pass away on January 15th. Your spouse or your heirs are going to get a full step up and they get to re-deduct that $400,000 of expenses all over again. Uh, that's that's there. So just something to be aware of. Again, this is beyond the scope of this podcast. So I'll probably have a podcast later on, maybe dealing with um, some estate planning, going through more on the details of a slat and so on, just for uh, providing some helpful guidance for you in a podcast format. Now, we had mentioned the nutrient land, the nutrient value on land purchase. Be careful of that. Uh, you know, we're seeing uh, an effective deduction in that three or $4,000 range in some areas, but it better be related to a lot of manure being applied. If it's just chemicals, chemical fertilizer being applied, likely it's going to be difficult to uh, get that type of deduction. Uh, there is the possibility, even for farmers, that you may qualify for the employee retention credit. Uh, you have until either April 15th of 2024 or April 15th of 2025 to get this credit. Uh, the maximums are per year employee. So if you have four full-time employees for 2020, you possibly could qualify for up to a $20,000 credit. And remember, this is dollar for dollar, it's not a deduction. And in 2021, if you qualified for all three quarters, you would get a $21,000 credit per employee, assuming you had enough wages times three. You know, that's a $60,000 credit, so it adds up fairly quickly. Now, most farmers only qualify for this if they had a large reduction in gross receipts. Now, in 2020, that reduction had to be at least 50%. In 2021, that reduction per quarter compared to 19, only has to be 20%. Now you could add a partial shutdown, but most farmers were essential operations, no farmer shut down. Uh, so if you meet that gross receipts test, especially in 2021, let's say your gross receipts in 2021 were down by at least 20%, that means automatically the first and second quarter of 2021 qualifies. And, and, you know, and that can be a pretty good sized credit as we talked about, it's refundable. Now, what's the drawbacks? 
the drawbacks is that you have to go back and file an amended return for 2021 or 2020 to pick up that credit as income, even though you're going to receive the credit in 2023. And you're likely going to have to pay interest on that. No penalty, but you're going to have to pay interest. Um, now, also, you have to pay somebody like us or somebody else to um, calculate this, file the amended 943s, and so on. So you're going to spend some fees on doing this, but substantially, you're still going to get a substantial portion of the credit. Now, there are certain promoters out there asserting that almost all businesses qualify due to supply chain problems. We all know we have supply chain problems. There is no authority on that. If you go ahead and get a credit based on one of these promoters saying you qualify due to supply chain problems, realize that the IRS has now trained over 300 staff to do audits on these ERCs. I think almost all ERCs over 10 or $20,000 is probably going to have some type of review by the IRS. If they come in and assert that you did this incorrectly, Remember these promoters, they're going to shut down their business in another year. They're, they're going to be out of business. You're going to be on your own. You're going to owe that tax plus interest plus penalties. Then if you had already gone back and filed an amendment return to pick that up as income, that may be a closed year and you may not even be able to go back and um, get a refund of that. So be very, very careful if you have these what we call fly-by-night promoters out there that are asserting you qualify based on supply chain. Just know that you have substantial risk that you're gonna have to pay all that back. So again, this was just a quick um, year in tax planning, dealing with some of the, the key tax planning options that farmers have. Uh, we, we just, you know, certainly there are others out there that are available. You know, you can elect to capitalize fertilizer, you can elect to capitalize repairs, uh, those type of things that your tax advisor, a good qualified farm tax CPA or tax preparer, they don't have to be a CPA. There's many, many very good farm tax advisors out there that are not CPAs uh, can definitely help you with that. So again, this is the Farm CPA Podcast presented by Top Producer. I am Paul Nee for your host, signing off. Get timely updates about taxation, accounting, succession planning, and other issues that are unique to farmers and agribusiness processors. Find out about major agribusiness events and how to comply with new laws that affect your business. Subscribe to Farm CPA at blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness and experience the CLA promise. blogs.claconnect.com forward slash agribusiness.